Hi there. Thanks for listening to the Whatever Remains podcast. I'm your host, Marie Mayhew. Thank you for tuning in to our episode recap on Circoville with Martin Yant. Stop dreaming of a quiet life because it's a one we'll never know. The subject of the Circleville letters has been covered a lot, starting in the early 1980s in local Ohio papers and TV, all the way to podcasts like this one. Arguably, the most famous media coverage on Circleville would have to be its appearance on a TV show called Unsolved Mysteries. Now, if you don't know what Unsolved Mysteries is, first thing, shame on you. You need to turn off this podcast, go on to Amazon, and watch all of them. We'll wait here for you. Unsolved Mysteries was, and really is, the gold standard of American true crime television. Robert Stack, in his trench coat, surrounded by swirling mist, looking out at the American viewing public and saying, join me, perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. I mean, who's not going to say, yes, Robert Stack, yes, I will join you. I will help solve that mystery. The Circleville letters were covered twice on the program, and we'll get into that more in later episodes. But the main important point is that this story about this town wouldn't be famous or even really well-known if it wasn't for the work of one man, private investigator Martin Yant. Martin Yant was originally a journalist and an editor in Ohio. In 1991, he left working for news organizations and devoted himself to independent journalism and to the investigations of possible wrongful convictions. Yant's work aided in the exoneration of 32 wrongfully convicted individuals, two of whom were sentenced to the death penalty. He worked on a case that led to the largest civil rights settlement in Ohio history. In 1996, while representing himself, Yant won a public records case against the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation in the Ohio Supreme Court. Yant himself is a published author, writing books on his experiences and the subject of wrongful conviction. His book, Presumed Guilty, When Innocent People Are Wrongly Convicted, has been listed by the Washington Post as one of the most important books published on the miscarriage of justice. He's been on numerous TV and talk radio shows and has had his investigations featured on NBC, the CBS Evening News, 48 Hours, A&E's American Justice, the Discovery Channel, and Unsolved Mysteries. Martin was hired to look into the conviction of Paul Freshhauser, the man that was ultimately sent to jail for attempted murder and is largely believed by the Circleville Police and the Sheriff's Office to be the letter writer all of which we will dig into later. Martin's research into this case did a couple of things. One, it raised questions about Freshhauser's conviction, and two, it introduced the story to a national audience as seen with the coverage on Unsolved Mysteries. I met Martin while researching Circleville, and he's agreed to join me in recapping what we've uncovered on the episodes. Here's our first discussion on episode one, the first three letters. Enjoy. So what did you think in looking at the first letter, again, March 2nd, 1977, sent to Westfall High School, attention, Massey, in quotes. The transformation of these letters over the first few is very interesting. They start to become more like the traditional block print as you Mm -hmm. go along. 
but if initially they don't mention Mary Gillespie, which is odd. Because yeah. as time went on, they became more and more obsessed with Mary Gillespie. What made that kind of change? First, the writer was concerned about all the bus drivers. Yeah, and it, even says, according to my girlfriend. So in the original letter sent to Gordon Massey, they're saying that whoever's writing these letters, it's his girlfriend or their girlfriend that he's trying to protect. It's about the girlfriend, yes, but it's about like his sexual harassment of this group of women has to stop. And that's what he or the writer seems the most adamant about. If I'm trying to understand what the author is asking for here in these letters, it's basically that Gordon Massey loses his job or is exposed. There would have been a clause in his contract about a morality clause, right? So if if this was, in fact, proven or alleged and proven going forward, he would have been fired by the school board. But what I just keep coming back to is the timing of these three letters, which is the first is sent on the 2nd of March. The following two, which go to the Board of Education and to another another local supervisor, are sent just two days afterwards. Not even really two days, because it posted on the 4th. If I'm Gordon Massey, I received this letter because it was addressed to him, and he would have hypothetically been the person to open it, there is no recourse in between me getting it <laughs> and it being sent to my my supervisors. So I think that that's very telling in that they had an agenda. The objective seems to be to get people upset with Gordon Massey. Yes. Strikes me, particularly in the first three letters, bang. Gordon Massey, you're a bad guy, and you're going to be exposed. We'll post the PDFs on our website so our listeners can also view the actual letters and the envelopes themselves. But one of the things that I think is really fascinating is the change between these letters on how the person was writing or choosing to write. Because it seemed like, again, they went from they're trying to establish what style they want to use you know, to disguise their natural handwriting as they go. But the one to the school board, I thought was very interesting because it was very, all caps, very, very legible. It's actually really nice looking font. I was looking at it and I was like, wow, this, if it wasn't such a menacing letter, it's very well written. So I thought that it was sort of a, again, they're, they're like establishing their voice and their style and their communication in this. But they're also changing their story a little bit in that, you know, at first, the one to him is is very much like, hey, you need to, you need to, you know, lay off harassing these women. It's not right. It's not, well, it's not good for the school. It's not good for the families, you know, and sort of this ethical and moral argument to sort of even later on, some women don't mind it, which I thought was, again, you know, this uh, is, yeah, this was like, the, he sort of, the, the writer loses sort of the whistleblower status with that in that it's like, you know, the morally bankrupt women don't care about it, but there are a few women who really don't appreciate this happening, which again is sort of a skewed way of looking at uh, sexual harassment, but is also 
kind of showing that it's underneath the veneer, it is not as altruistic as it's trying to be, is how I looked at it. What would be the reason that someone would want to bring this much attention to Gordon Massey? And I think that that's what I'm trying to dig into, or we sh- we're trying to yeah, dig into Yeah, I think next. the target from the very first letter is more Gordon Massey than Mary Gillespie. Mm-hmm. And then later, it kind of switches to make Mary Gillespie as much as as Gordon Massey. And then, of course, it ends up with supposed uh, attempted murder. Yes. Yes. And there's something going on here that I think it's kind of hard to fathom, but I really am thinking that I should try to talk to some people. Without, you know, having to examine some more of, you know, trying to gather some more facts about what was happening in Circleville during this time, what was happening in the school district during this time, which is a little difficult because it is now the 70s, which doesn't seem that that terribly long to you or I, but I'm sure to, to, to some people it's, it's already ancient history that they're reading about. Ancient history, in, yeah. <laughs> that they're reading about, I was going to say in textbooks, but nobody even really no, has textbooks you? anymore. Oh my God, Martin, I am, I am a crone. Um, I'm telling you, what, I'm, I'm old enough. I'm old enough to, to know that the, that the seventies, to remember the seventies, but to know that they, you know, that some, a good time, a good amount of time has passed in between now and then. But I would say that it's hard to find out what's happening because of that. And I think I sent you, and I'll, I'll tell the listeners the email. So again, trying to find records from this time period is difficult because everything is, nothing is really digital and everything's on microfiche. And I made a request recently and the person got back to me and said, we, we, we want to be able to provide that for you. It's going to take some time because the microfiche is in someone's safety deposit box somewhere. So we have to. (laughs) But I'm impressed how people are going out of their way to try to help you. I am too. I think I think it speaks. See, when I did this, <laughs> the wounds were all still pretty fresh. Mm. And Paul Freshall was still in prison. He was still being accused of writing these threatening letters. And then Paul had been making accusations against the sheriffs and others. So emotions were still pretty raw in 1992. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now it's kind of ancient history. As ancient as the 70s, yes, but agreed, agreed. Now, one thing, now another person I could talk to, he's a brilliant forensic scientist, and I quite often get him involved in cases. He's been involved in several wrongful conviction cases, but he's also a profiler. In general, I'm not a big fan of profilers who think they can tell you what right. kind of person to look for mm-hmm. who would match this the killer because what they don't tell you is they're quite often way off the mark and they bury those cases and only tell you the ones where they, they were close. But, <laughs> but he's a contrarian type of profiler who looks at things differently. Oh, well, you had me at and, contrarian, so. <laughs> and I think I could run it by him and just... I mean, it's amazing. He does what he calls 
think he calls it a forensic autopsy and looks at all hmm. the crime scene stuff, everything else. Hmm. And then he'll develop an idea of who the killer is, hmm. what kind of person is. But I have no doubt he's a genius because his mind is just always, he, he's almost Sherlockian. Hmm. And, you know, and he'll go into a crime scene and one Good example is that of that is the uh, West Memphis Three. Oh my goodness! Yes. Case. Yes. Well, he's he helped turn that around because he just looking at the autopsy photos and what they were identifying as insect bites. He said those aren't insect bites; those are bite marks. Oh my God! So he's very perceptive, like that. Mm-hmm. But he might be able. to to, if nothing else, give some enlightening or entertaining insights on what kind of person this might be. I, I think that that would be great. I mean... And then I think what yeah. I've got to do is a couple of things. And mm-hmm. then I thought I would try to track down and see if Gordon Massey's son... Mm, William. ...is still alive because many people... He is. ...have a theory that he did it. I think... He is. He's still in Circleville. I think it would be interesting to know what what he thought was happening during this time period in 1977. Yeah, his father's long gone. Mm-hmm. This is a real mystery, and it may mm-hmm. plague him, too. I think it's interesting because one of the questions that I have is, did the letter writer send things to his home, to Gordon Massey's home? Or to Gordon Massey's wife, Clara. Yeah. We don't know because none of those letters have ever been, they're not in any of the police records that I've found. They're not referenced. But at the start of this, I didn't know that he had written or the writer had written directly to Gordon Massey either. So I would be curious to know what, if anything, the Massey family would want to disclose about this because I do think it's, you know, again, he's, he's being accused of something in these letters, you know, trial ball rumor in some ways, because there is, there is no proof of any of this. There's no proof that he was anything but a, you know, a very good superintendent. He served as a superintendent in Westfall and, and a principal in that community for decades. So it's one of those things where it's like we've also made assumptions on someone's character with only knowing a portion of the truth or what we think is the truth. And that's what I'm sort of curious to find out next is like, here's what I think I know about Gordon Massey, but what really happened with that? What was the story with with what was happening? Well, then the other person Mm -hmm. to be interviewed is Mary Gillespie. Yeah. I can't find her. (laughs) <laughs> in any of my searches, I cannot, I can't find hide nor hair of her. I think I still have her. I'm pretty sure I can locate her. Well, I'm, I'm, yes, you're, you're a professional. I'm, yeah, I think that would be great. But I'm really beginning to think this could make a fascinating book. Oh, absolutely. I think that the more we find out, the more we can actually trace back a lot of these a lot of these letters and kind of dig into what was going on find out what was going on in the town and start to piece 
more of a picture together yeah. of this is what's happening. This is what happened in the 70s. And then this is what happened in the 80s as it, there was a resurgence. Are you willing to co-write it with me? <laughs> Am I going on the record of saying I would? Of course I would. Of course. Of course. I mean, to Maybe me. I can launch your literary. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I would love to do something like that. I feel like one of my friends, when uh, Forrest Burgess, when I told him I was doing, he he's the co-host of Astonishing Legends podcast. Um, when I told him what I was legends? astonishing legends. So he is, they, they cover all sorts of him and his good friend, uh, Scott Philbrook have a, a wonderful podcast that covers the gamut of all sorts of strange history, strange science, and they've done really wonderful work. And when I told him I was doing, I was doing the, uh, the circle of the letters, he was like, eh, isn't that kind of done? Like, haven't you, haven't you, everybody's covered that. Everyone knows everything that there is to know about that. That's like an episode and a half. I was no, like, eh. no, they don't. It's <laughs> and mostly clearly, on, yeah. they took my story uh-huh. and the unsolved mysteries, and then they piled on all kinds of speculation. That was my point back to him as I was like, I don't know, man, the more, you know, the idea of, of this contagion kind of taking over this town and then nobody really knowing who it was or how or what happened or why it happened was what fascinated me to begin with. But then the more you start to dig into the people and what was happening in their lives and, and how it was affecting them, I think it's... I think there's a lot to it. I would love to be able to to go deeper into it. So this wraps up our first interview with private investigator Martin Yant, who we thank for giving us his guidance and insight on this mystery. We'll be speaking with him again in the coming weeks about what we unearth next in Circleville. Be sure to check out his great books, Rotten to the Core and Presumed Guilty, When Innocent People Are Wrongly Convicted, amongst others. So until our next episode, remember, what goes around comes around. And thank you for listening. Want to know what Whatever Remains is getting up to next? Follow us on Twitter at Whatever Remains or online at whateverremainspodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Our intro music is by Group Rhoda. Our closing song for Circleville is performed by Ed Grabianowski, produced by Rich Root. The all-seeing eye, or our logo, is by the super-talented Desdemona. This episode was remixed by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell. And a very special thank you to the Astonishing Legends podcast. This has been a copyright Five Orange Pips production, all rights reserved. This town